Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Do you miss the days when all the answers to life's big questions could be found in the juicy pages of Dolly Doctor? Sex, friendships, relationships, family, life stuff. Dolly gave us total honesty with zero judgment. We learned that it wasn't weird to masturbate, like a lot, and that periods can sometimes be tricky, unpredictable things. We talked about what to do when we had a crush on someone and how to get over relationship breakups. Having Dolly to turn to made all that teenage angst a bit more bearable. Adulthood was around the corner. We would all get our shit together Move to the city to become big-time businesswomen and sleep with Harrison Ford, like Melanie Griffiths in Working Girl. Was that just me? Life was happening. And then we all grew up and realised that everything is still confusing. Welcome to the Big Sister Hotline. Presented weekly by me, Clementine Ford, this is your place to ask all the questions you still don't know the answers to about sex, friendships, relationships, family and life stuff with the kind of frank advice you could expect to find from the person who loves you most, your big sister. Because life isn't easy. And sometimes we all need a big sister to call on. Hello, dear listeners, guys, gals, and non-binary pals. You're listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly podcast offering frank, funny, and feminist advice on life, love, and whether or not you should break up with your no-good-nick boyfriend. And spoiler, if you've listened to a lot of episodes of this show, you will know that the answer is always yes. The Big Sister Hotline is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. Sovereignty of these lands has never been ceded. I pay my respects to Elders past and present. This land always was and always will be Aboriginal and Black Lives Matter. Also, a content note, this episode will discuss ableism. This week's guest is a woman of many talents. You may know her from her very public work calling out ableism or perhaps from the joyfully matchy, clashy outfits she posts on her Instagram page. In her own words, she's a writer, speaker, appearance activist, lifetime fan of Darren Hayes, lover of cheese, wearer of rainbows. She is Carly Findlay. Carly, welcome to the hotline. Thank you. Thank you for having me. How are you going? I'm good. I'm busy. So tell me, Carly, we are about to head back into some form of lockdown and isolation. Uh Uh, What is your best approach to that and how have you been dealing with isolation in general? Uh, I've been, firstly, I was in a bit of a panic because like you, as a speaker, all of my speaking gigs went. So, you know, I'd lost tens of thousands of dollars of income. Um, But I kind of found uh, lots of work after that. You know, I'm super busy, especially today, being the end of financial year. Lots of people want their invoices, lots of projects to work on, which is good. Um, My motto has been, though, getting up dressing up and showing up every day. Um, I try to go for a walk most days. I put on regular clothes like I would if I was to go to work. Um, Granted, none of them involve tight pants, so, you know, um, mostly comfortable and also just really working to keep myself busy and keep myself working and keep um yeah keep connected as well that's been really important I really I've been lucky that my work for my day job at Melbourne Fringe has not been affected but um, I do miss going into the office and I do miss my colleagues I feel really lonely without them so um you know I love my Melbourne Fringe days Mm. because I get to see them on you know zoom meetings but I do miss going in yeah, that's what I miss. I miss people. I really like cooking. I'm really enjoying that and I know you have as well. It's been nice. I bought this really big pot from um, mm. it's one of those big cast iron pots and I have been cooking something in that nearly every day for the last six weeks. Actually, 
on on the pot, I, I remember seeing you post something recently about um, <laughs> you, you said it's, you know, these pots that I've bought are on sale. Yeah. And someone felt the need to point out to you, well, I won't support any company that associates with Pete Evans. And it's like, yeah, cool. Pete Evans <laughs> is a very special uh, br- br- brand of human. <laughs> I think that's the <laughs> kindest way I can put it. But I thought that your response to them was so, so great. It was very tempered and very kind of like I acknowledge what you're saying but I'm going to buy this pot and you don't have to buy the pot if you don't want to and it, it sort of I recognized it a lot because I felt um you become so practiced at sort of batting away yeah. some of some of the more sort of pushnickety complaints that people have when you're in the public eye like you are I feel like like I said to someone this morning I've just been like Christian splamed on my post on my Facebook this morning because I tweeted about Guy Sebastian's attachment to Hillsong um, and his representation in the arts and and a Christian was telling me I was wrong and I said I don't mind if you disagree but if you disagree and that's the only interaction we have like I've never heard from that person before really but if that's the only interaction we have for mm. you to tell me that you disagree then that pisses me off, you know. So I am going to be really blunt and um, in my response. Mm. You know, I think I told the pot man, like, you do you. I'm going to buy this pot. You know, there's other brands out there. Uh, the pot is very good. I highly recommend it. Um, <laughs> I do have a cast iron pot. I got the Aldi one in the oh, Aldi yes. sale recently yes. and I'm very satisfied with it. But, you know, I don't want to be dismissive of <laughs> um, people who, uh, you know, who point out shortcomings on Facebook or who who are genuinely sort of there to say I'm not sure if you're aware of this but mm-hmm. uh, this brand is associated with this or um, you know you may you may not know that this person did or said this thing or holds these views whatever it might be I understand that we all have that impulse to I guess kind of educate each other and and bring a new mm-hmm. perspective or bring a broader perspe- broader perspective but yeah. it does feel sometimes like with um, and I'm not talking about you know big uh, big issues here or serious issues, but it does feel sometimes like the way that online in, uh, the online interactions work is that sometimes people like they read something and they're like, "What's where's the hole? Where's the thing that I can come in and I can yeah. be a little bit contrarian about this?" And I I'm really interested in what motivates that mm-hmm. compulsion because I feel it too. Like I'm yeah. subject to it as well. That sometimes yeah. I read someone's post and I'm like, "Ooh, I need to say something about this," and it's mm-hmm. it's some kind of like it's it's a way I think to broadcast our values and broadcast mm-hmm. our engagement, I guess, and. Oftentimes that can be really good behaviour and then sometimes you're like, well, it's just a fucking pot. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I feel like sometimes people are trying to pick at you and just waiting for you to trip up. Um, I know, you know, through the clothes that I wear, um, you and I wear both wear Gorman and people point out how awful they are and, you know, I am very well aware of that and I also wear clothes that aren't Gorman and support, um, you know, makers in other ways. Uh, but then, you know, I've had people message me privately, in First Nations people message me really privately and politely to say, hey, I'm really uncomfortable with you sharing a photo of Meghan Markle. And they've taken the time to explain it and why it hurts them and that it's about... Um, you know, the impact of colonisers on um, Aboriginal people. And that I've been most appreciative of that because we regularly engage, So you know, with, with those people. I regularly engage with the people that, that told me that and they're taking the time to provide that, you know, really constructive, informative and polite way. But when it's something really small like, well, the clothes you wear don't go up to my size or, um, uh, you know, Pete Evans supports his brand so I'm not going to, that's... I, I don't know, like, I don't know whether that's going to change my mind in anything. Mm. 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 Well, it's an interesting expression of activism, I think, um, in that is it really activism to... So, okay, so this is my perspective. Mm-hmm. If I, as a um, an able-bodied person, mm-hmm. um, if my response to seeing ableism in other people is to uh or or rather if my response to someone asking well what can I do to combat this ableism or Mm -hmm. what how you know can you explain to me what is ableist about this Mm -hmm. if my response as an able-bodied person is to say well fuck you do your own fucking homework go and use google it's not my job to educate you my my kind of feeling about Mm -hmm. people with privilege who position themselves in that 
quite hostile response is always, no, it is exactly my job to sit here and patiently hold your hand and share with you some of the articles that I've read and share with you some of the um, disability activists who've educated Mm -hmm. me because fuck knows I didn't fucking come out of the bubble Mm -hmm. when I was born with perfect views. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. someone has done that work for me along the way. Usually people who experience the oppression themselves and, and have, you know, suffered the indignity of needing to endlessly explain and do the labour of it. So, of course, it's my job to share that education, that information. I think that that's so often what people with privilege miss, either willfully or unconsciously. Mm. Um, And part of it, I think, is that it's this sort of like um, if I can kind of like fire shots at you first, if I can uh, shame you for not knowing all of the things, Mm. even though I didn't, also know all of the things at one point Mm. and I still don't know all of the things now because I'm still learning and I'm Mm. you know I'm talking about me personally but also the royal me yeah um or the royal me is probably again you know it's probably probably shouldn't use that term but talking about the collective me yeah yeah um then it's it's a way of it's a way of kind of like erecting this really dangerous force field I think around our own behavior because then if we're, you know, I really loathe the term virtue signalling because it's so often used as the right to dismiss discussion about politics yeah. and oppression and discrimination. But it's a form of sort of signalling to other people that, you know, we're not part of the oppressive system, even if we are beneficiaries of the oppressive system. Yeah. And I and I find that really troubling because, if anything, people who experience the privilege should be, you know, doing the work and the patient work of sharing that um, education with other people. I yeah, I I absolutely agree, and I know like uh, recently with Black Lives Matter being very very prominent, particularly in Australia, more than it has in the past. Um, you know, I I have I'm really mindful, obviously, not to speak over First Nations people, but I, as a non-Indigenous person, feel that I could educate the audience I have and do the work with the knowledge that I have gained from many, many First Nations people and working with them and, and listening to them and watching art. Um, I put a post up around, you know, what you can do instead of going to the protest if you're unable to go to the protest. And that post got shared a lot and I directed people to a bunch of First Nations voices and, you know, never claimed obviously to speak for them. But I had someone say, hey, Carly, can I just copy and paste this for my own use? And I know that this isn't, like, I'm not expecting props for this or cookies, but I actually said no. I said, like, you, you do your own work on this, you know. I've done my own work. You know, that that piece that I wrote for Instagram and Facebook took hours to collate. So you do your own work. Yeah. I want to move now into something you said just before about, you know, you get up in the morning and you dress mm-hmm. up and you show up. And I want to talk to you about something, you know, a passion that you and I both share, which mm-hmm. is for fashion yep. and colour and and dressing up. And yep. I want to talk to you about the politics of that. <laughs> how how long, because as long as I've known you, which is at yep. least 10 years, yep. you've definitely been um, a vibrant dresser. You've announced your presence in a room with the things that you're wearing. Yes. Has this, I've seen some of your photos from when you were a kid and mm. I, I've got to say there's a lot of lace. Um, <laughs> there's some like lapels, stuff I, I would have died and gone to heaven to wear when I was a kid and I was obsessed yeah. with frills and puffs and yeah. you know, all the good stuff. Yeah. I feel like you and I have a very similar aesthetic. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're the same age and I feel that um, I think maybe our mums might have shopped at <laughs> similar shops or had the same style. Um, I have always loved to, to dress up. Uh, but yeah, very Laura Ashley. Very Laura Ashley. Um, I had this amazing year six formal outfit, which I just wish I had now. Like it was purple, like a purple vest and these wide-legged pants. And I think at the time I was a bit embarrassed to wear it, but now I would totally wear it. Um, But for many years, I didn't really want to stand out more than I did. I didn't want to draw attention to something else um, when my face was already drawing attention to me. And so I would shy away from things that stood out. You know, I had, when I first moved to Melbourne 17 years ago, I'd buy things that most, mostly from sports girl really because they were doing it more than things like sequin tops and you know colored leather or pleather jackets then and I would be really scared to wear them so I just didn't want to 
you know, draw more attention to myself. And so I didn't and I got a bit scared. Um, but in the, I, I think, you know, since I turned 30, it just changed and I really don't care. I don't give a fuck what someone thinks. And I don't, I remember going out with this guy who I met on the internet probably in about 2005, 2006. And he said to me that I should really just wear grey colours because I didn't want to have to clash any kind of colour with my red face. And I, I didn't take his words to heart. Yeah, but, you know, it, it did make me think about maybe maybe this is what people want to see, you know, maybe people are projecting their own insecurities with the way I look and dictating how I should dress. So, yeah, I, I would say that for a long time I, I didn't really want to stand out. Now I just I don't care. I'll, I'll wear what I want. I'll use my colour as an accessory and um, the brighter the better. Yeah. I did I, on Instagram actually yesterday I was doing some hashtags. I don't usually hashtag my posts but I thought, you know, why not reach a new audience and a suggested hashtag came up like, clothes my clothes that I wear my husband hates and I kind of laugh like Adam doesn't really care what I wear at all but uh, it did make me laugh that you know we are so often rebelling against the patriarchy when really we should just wear what makes us happy. Mm. It's interesting because obviously you've had a very specific experience of adolescence Mm. and you know entering adulthood and, and womanhood and discovering um, discovering what you like and also discovering confidence. Mm-hmm. And when I say discovering confidence, I don't mean that that's a unique experience for you because, of mm-hmm. course, that's a process that we all go through. Mm-hmm. You've Yours has just been defined by some very specific experiences. Yeah. But I feel like that's quite universal, that sense of, um, you know, in my for, for very different reasons in my 20s, I also had that feeling of like, well, I don't want to call attention to myself or, yeah. uh, you know, I... I I always, I felt like I always wore things wrong, mm. you know, like I was drawn to particular colours and patterns and styles and stuff. But I guess, you know, without sounding too trite and twee, the biggest fashion accessory that I didn't have was confidence because <laughs> um, you can sort of pull anything off if you if you wear yeah, confidence, absolutely. right? Um, yeah. But that's one of the things that I found really liberating about being in my 30s. And as you said, you and I are about the same age, <laughs> but um yeah, it's it's having a fuck it attitude, but also having a, a much deeper and more formed sense of who I am as a person. Yeah, and I also think, I mean, I know this is, is very much talking about privilege, but I also think money comes into it as well. You know, um, in my 30s, I moved in with Adam and so, you know, my, my expenses were halved and also my career changed and so I was able to afford a lot more things and dress how I want. You know money liberates people as well and that's definitely a form of privilege of Mm. course it is and Mm. being able to uh, you know have have the luxury and the privilege of uh, you know career stability and in your case domestic stability because you've got you know you share the bills with Mm. your partner yeah I mean that's that's something that a lot of people don't have yeah um yeah, so let, let's just bring that into the conversation and say that as we talk about these things, of course, we're privileged by yeah. our ability to be able to move more freely through that space. Yeah, and I think, um, I mean, you and I are both in, you know, some fashion Facebook groups together. And one of the things that I see a lot is women kind of sniggering or sneaky talking about, oh, gosh, I can't let my partner see what I bought, you know, hide the parcels from from them. And I really find that quite concerning. I know when um, when my grandmother died, for example, she, uh, you know, obviously wasn't as independent as women now are, and probably wasn't treated as equally by my grandfather. And when my when when she died, my parents went and unpacked the house or packed up the house, um, whatever way you look at that, and they found a whole heap of clothes that she bought that she just never wore, I guess because she was trying to hide her purchases, that she was too ashamed. And this stuff continues now. You know, you see it in a lot of those clothing forums online. Mm. I find that really disturbing too. And, you know, it's very relevant to a lot of what we discuss on the Big Sister Hotline is this sense of um, how patriarchy manifests itself in our relationships and in our day-to-day lives from from women who would otherwise consider themselves to be very strong and independent and all of the words that you can sort of associate with that. But, yeah, like playing into this, I think for a lot of people they think it's a lot 
less um or it's a lot more meaningless it's just frivolous words you know it's just a joke it's mm. just kind of like a joke about being in a relationship etc cetera, etc cetera. but it's actually not just it's actually very political and very powerful to say this is my money and and also not kind of you know I feel like a lot of women would turn around and say well he's not really like that I'm just making a joke mm. and you sort of I think well okay what are you making the joke about are you making the joke about the fact that your partner your male partner still somehow like has some discretion over the money that you spend that mm. and also that the money that you spend on the things that you want money that you've earned yeah. somehow that those aren't those aren't important purchases those aren't real purchases mm. and actually like if uh this is this is a side note but mm. one of the things that i've been talking about um recently and in the past week in particular has been the impact of birth trauma mm. on the lives of people who are birth parents um whether or not they birth vaginal or via cesarean that there are significant physical impacts that come from carrying a pregnancy for up to nine months and then uh, giving birth to a baby mm -hmm. and one of those impacts is um and this my experience is an impact on pelvic floor weakness mm. and I mean my my experience was actually quite comparatively from what I've heard actually quite mild and it was still very stressful mm. for my life and stressful in terms of thinking um well surely you, you know this response that like oh we'll just get on with it it's oh well you know that's just what happens when you have a baby well that, when there's treatments available that shouldn't just be how mm. we treat people who've gone through something you know physically very demanding yeah and there, there are treatments, but they're very costly. And I wonder at what point that cost is somehow considered to be irrelevant, you know, that it's it's very important for people to be able to, you know, buy a fucking PlayStation mm -hmm. or, you know, like buy thousands of dollars worth of toys for their children at Christmas time, mm -hmm. but not so important for them to say, right, well, over the next year we're going to save $1,500 or $2,000 to try this treatment that will significantly improve the strength and health of your pelvic floor, mm -hmm. even though that, you know, this should be subsidised by mm -hmm. the government. Mm -hmm. As far as I'm concerned, if you're creating new taxpayers to fucking service the economy, then you should be acknowledged for that, right? Yeah. 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 This is what we're broadly talking about, is that the economic desires and interests of women in particular, um, whether or not they're aesthetic or whether or not they're just for our own enjoyment and whether or not they're, they're actually serious and, um, you know, would significantly have some kind of impact on our life, are still always seen as secondary to those of the men that we partner with, if we partner with men. I mean, I, I feel like books, for an example, you know, a lot of people think books are a luxury, but books help us see the wider world. They help us educate. They help us escape. Um, and so it is really important that our, you know, what we buy isn't seen as, as frivolous, isn't seen as secondary and is seen as important that our mental, physical, intellectual health should be taken care of. You have a story in your book, which is for everyone listening, Say Hello. Um, it's Carly's memoir. The tagline is how I became my own fangirl, a memoir and manifesto on difference, acceptance, self-love and belief. Mm -hmm. And one of the stories that really, I guess, moved me, I mean, it's a, it's a great book in general for everyone to listen to um, and you do have it on an audiobook mm -hmm. and people can read it. So, But one of the stories that really moved me was your experience, as you recounted, of um, internet dating mm -hmm. relationships and one man in particular mm -hmm. who basically catfished for yeah, six years. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so in 1999, so when I was what, 17, I uh, had <laughs> I had taken the day off to listen to Savage Garden because I'd taken to that school to listen to Savage Garden because they <laughs> they had released a new song. You know, back in those days, bands would drop a song on the radio and that would be the first time you hear it, you know, you heard of it. And so I think I convinced my mum to have a sick day so I could do this. I'm not sure if I told her at the time. But anyway, on that day I was chatting on ICQ, which was the um, online chat service that was mostly used then before Messenger. Um, the sound associated with that with, was that uh-oh and a little flower and this guy popped up and he lived in Brisbane. He was 18. So I think, yeah, we were born in the same year and he, he just turned 18. I was 17 and we hit it off straight away. He was a chef, an apprentice chef in his second year. He lived in Brisbane. I at the time lived in country New South Wales in a little town outside of Aubrey-Wodonga and 
uh, we chatted for weeks online and I was about to do my my HSC my um high school certificate and I you know fell in love with him through chatting online uh, you got I got to know him so well and he sent me some photos at the time I was really scared of sending my own photo online because I didn't know what would happen I didn't know whether I'd be rejected I didn't know if my photo would be laughed at or misused obviously reddit wasn't available then so there was none of that but who knows what might have happened so it took a lot of courage to you know to send in my photo and I did I don't know how many weeks into that I did but I did and he still wanted to chat to me and um it was like the day before my first high school exam HSC exam that I talked to him on the phone for the first time which you know in hindsight probably wasn't a great idea to talk to him on the phone for hours the night before but from then we would talk on the phone for so long you know on the landline until the phone went flat for hours and hours and hours you know till two three in the morning um every day for probably about three months I would say and he I don't know whether he did this to sort of get out out of the relationship but before he planned to come and meet me he told me that his ex-girlfriend was pregnant to him and being quite a diligent pleasing you know wanting to please child that I was or teenager that I was um I told my parents about this you know I'm really worried about this guy you know I want to be up front with you and they said no he's just he's not coming he's not staying at our house no 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 he's going to get you pregnant as well anyway um some some reason you know he they they came around when when he turned up on the off the plane so he did come visit me when he turned up off the plane he was you know a, a skinny scrawny little man um young man and my parents sort of said oh gosh I can't let him stay in a hotel you know so he did come to stay with me and he stayed with me for about two weeks and he was fine like he was quite lovely he was really my parents were quite enamored with him we had a really great time and then he went back to Brisbane and I didn't hear from him again for ages like he never returned my calls um and then he popped up on ICQ again apologizing said that he was back with his girlfriend and you know things we we would talk and he would say you know things were different I'd be with you and then the baby came I sent him some baby clothes um you know we we talk and we talk for we talk on and off for years like I remember saying to my mum I think that we'll always be you know in each other's lives in some way friends in some way Anyway, um, about like, so that was in 99. In 2005, he was still texting, calling me at the time. At the time, we, you know, obviously we could text message by then. And he would call me and then suddenly have to go off, you know, suddenly would have to say, I have to go. And then one night, this woman called me and she, like, was absolutely livid. And she said, You know, how do you know this guy? What? what's he talking to you about why is your phone number coming up on all of our bills and I said hold on a minute like what what are you talking about and she said I'm this guy's girlfriend and I said oh I didn't know he had a girlfriend like I'd always ask him and he'd say why do you think I'm talking to you and anyway he um uh he was obviously I get nothing really was happening like we we weren't you know having phone sex or anything that was not in a kind of romantic way he was just talking to me and he then yeah she then said that he's been you know um, I guess cheating on me by calling me so much um and so anyway when she calmed down we talked more and she said how do you know him and you know I told him that was something else he told me actually at the time when I um you know, after he went back to to Brisbane, after we met, his mother got really sick and died. Anyway, so when he finally, you know, when we'd finally gotten over her anger, she asked me what happened. And I said, you know, when his mother died, and when the baby came along, and she's like, hold on a minute, I live with his mother, and there is no baby. (laughs) So he'd like catfished me, for six years in like spinning these really elaborate stories about having a baby like he was telling me that the baby you know the, the baby mm. obviously turned into a child and went to school um I remember at the time like when he's when his mum died I was talking about how my dog died and he actually asked me not to talk about that because it, it upset him too much that his mother dying was more important than my dog dying 
um, you know, and, and that's a good perspective, but not if you're lying. Mm. <laughs> so, so yeah. And look, I, I confronted him about mm. it. I talked to him about it and I said, why did you do this? And he said, because I wanted to be better than I really was. I'm like, how is that being better than you really were? <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. And look, I've, you know, I've stalked him online. He, he hasn't changed. I'm really glad I'm not with him. <laughs> I mean, that's that's kind of the best revenge, isn't it? That the, all of these people who mm. broke our hearts yeah. into a million pieces when we were young <laughs> and you can sort of look at them now and, and look at yourself and look at what you've achieved and, yeah. and feel pride in that. Absolutely. And think, mm, and I, know who, I know who turned out better here, boy. <laughs> um, and you know what? I'm really good friends with his ex-girlfriend. I mean, we've caught up a couple of times. She came to my book launch last year. <laughs> so, you know, we're, we're close. I feel like the best breakups are the ones where you end up being, you, you get an amazing new girlfriend. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, when either, either, it's, either it's not been a terrible breakup, but you've, you know, you've met like a great girlfriend through them, mm. or it has been a terrible breakup, like the one that you had, mm. and you still meet a great girlfriend through it. Yeah. But I feel like, so that's like beyond catfishing. That's, that's, con artistry yeah. and I mean who has that's the time abuse as and well. I mean it's, it's an abusive relationship absolutely it's heartbreaking because what you because you still go through the grief mm. you know you still grieve for the loss of this this promise mm-hmm. that you you fell in love with someone who doesn't exist and I mm-hmm. feel like in lots of ways that's actually a lot harder to get over yeah. than to get over someone who who shows you from the outset who they are Mm. and yes you may fall in love and you may fall out of love with Mm. each other but at least you have something tangible to hold on to whereas someone who's been lying to you and someone who's been gaslighting you and abusing you in this way it doesn't change the fact that when that all comes out and when you're aware of who they are you still have this person Mm. in your head who exists in a really strong tangible way and you don't know what to do with that grief. Absolutely I feel like you know I obviously I met him and and he was great. Like and my parents liked him, and and I'm quite close to my parents. And I'm, I'm I was a very you know good wanting to please child. And I felt like I had conned my parents in some way by let, letting him stay. I mean, it was really lucky that we weren't killed by a psychopath. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess that's the thing about most people who run scams like this. They're, they're pretty, you know. They, they, they get off on the emotional manipulation Absolutely. of it, don't they? And all yeah. of what he said to you about like, well, I wanted you to make me a better person. I mean, that's probably a lie as well. He, yeah. That's just something that people say to make mm-hmm. themselves sound more admirable than they are. I wanted you to make me a better man. I think he just got off on being yeah. obviously emotionally manipulating all yeah. of these women in his Absolutely. life because he suffered from chronically low self-esteem yeah. and and yeah. his his sort of... His sense of being somehow outside of patriarchal power, mm. he reasserted that himself within it by yeah. uh, abusing women who trusted him. Yeah, and I, I mean, I did get in contact with the person that um, he supposedly had a baby with, and she was just shocked that her story was used in that way as well. Um, it's a real. It was so. It was so odd. Like, like you said, mm. you know, you just you, you don't know the type of person you've been loving and thinking of and imagining and. Yeah, and I felt really bad for my parents as well because I tried to convince them to trust me. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, you can't be blamed for that. No. This thing is that any, regardless of, like, how you meet someone, any relationship or romantic connection is a leap of faith. And as you get older, one of the things that I... One of the downsides of getting older, I think, is that your ability to trust becomes a lot more mm-hmm. calcified. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I feel like I've got a lot of scar tissue around my heart, as we all do. You're like, you can't get to your late 30s and have lived at all and not have some some kind of scar tissue. He was the first to really show me any kind of affection. Maybe not the first, but, you know, um, so that that really was hard. But I also thought how much work would it have taken to keep notes of what he did, what his story was, because there was so much, you know, much more than what I've told you um, that he would have had to, I mean, was he keeping a spreadsheet? Was he keeping a file of what was happening? I don't know. It was so weird. Who has the time for that? I don't think that people keep spreadsheets. I think that they're just so adept at lying. They're so good at it. that, and, And they're so good at how to wiggle out of a lie when they get caught out you know mm-hmm. there's always there's always a story there's always a reason mm-hmm. they're always able to kind of I mean that's how they that's how they 
operate so well. And, you know, I haven't read Stephanie Wood's book, Fake, yet. That's amazing. You've got to. I gather that she goes into this scenario in that. But, you know, one of the things that you, one of the traumas, I guess, that people who've experienced something like that goes through is how could I have been so ignorant? How could I have been taken in so easily? You know, what's wrong with me that I could have been Mm -hmm. so easily fooled? And it's it's not anything about what you've done or, you know, how you failed in this scenario, these people are just really fucking good at yeah. what they do. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like, I mean, I don't know whether you've watched the show Catfish. I've, I'm addicted to it, honestly. And I just feel like they, like the catfishers really prey on those people with, with lowest low esteem who feel like the first person to give them attention is the only person for them. And that's really hard and that's a form of abuse. Yes, yes. Mm. And I think it's really important to make the point Um and also for everyone listening, that it's, you know, to, to assume assumptions are made about lots of people who experience marginalisation um, and physical and aesthetic marginalisation in society. A lot of assumptions are made about them being easy targets, mm. you know, or being or will, you know, go after them because they'll be grateful for the attention. Yeah. And I think that that's the first mistake that people make because I don't think that anyone who knows you would look at you and think, oh, yeah, Carly's an easy target for that mm. um, because, you know, because of ableist assumptions about you and your life. Like mm. you would not fucking truck with that shit at all. Absolutely. I, I think now 38-year-old Carly wouldn't, but 18-year-old Carly would. Yeah, and it's growth, you know. Yeah, and I, I, I'm not trying to discount that at all. Mm. Um, I guess what I'm trying to do maybe clumsily is to say that, you know, there are, adolescence is a fucking terrible time for so many people Mm -hmm. and it is compounded by uh, ableism and phobia and sexism Mm -hmm. and racism and all these things, absolutely 100%. But anyone who thinks, who is tempted to think of you as being somehow different because Mm -hmm. you have, um, you know, visible aesthetic difference Mm -hmm. is discounting the fact that um, I don't, I'm not saying like you're just like everyone else Mm -hmm. because we're all unique individuals, (laughs) but I feel like to to propagate that narrative is, you know, it kind of plays into what you talk about in your book about the desexualization yeah, of disabled absolutely. women. Absolutely. That, you know, disabled women are framed in one of two ways, which is either desexualized entirely mm-hmm. or as hypersexualized. And mm-hmm. and actually, you're, you know, your your sexuality is that of who you are. Mm-hmm. It's that of a you know it's, a, it's that of a typical heterosexual cis woman yeah absolutely and I, I feel like because he also in a way did this to you know his then girlfriend and also the person that he claimed to have a baby with it, it shows that he wasn't just doing this because of my appearance and back then I didn't identify as disabled anyway but it, it meant so much to me that someone was paying attention and I actually didn't think that this this in any way was related to ichthyosis at all like I just think he was a awful person mm. Mm. yeah and and it's that, that was just kind of like a, a fact yeah. you know on the hotline I often talk about um facts of yeah. existence you know mm. so uh, last week someone wrote in and asked about how do they deal with the aftermath of learning that they have HPV and they have a lot of anxiety about it and you know I tried to stress to them this is just a fact of Mm. who you are it's not a defining element of your personality it's just it's just a thing about you and I'm not discount I don't want to sort of like minimize and say well you know you're more than your disability because your disability is has clearly been Mm. a very defining factor of your life Mm. and a defining factor in your politics and shaping of your politics Mm. and how you engage with and expect better of other people of course but you know, it could have been any number of things about you that drew this person to you because what they really seek out is someone who is, I think, or who they assume is in need of um, or will be susceptible to their charm. And and actually a lot of women in adolescence are susceptible to charm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's that um, it's that idea that, you know, the amazing Instagram allowed Bossy Gross talked about the other day on her video where she said, don't fall for the first person that gives you attention. Yes. Yes. Yes, God, that is so important. I just fucking, you know, she's only 19. I know, I couldn't believe that when I listened. Amazing. She's so amazing. I said to her, I wish that I had her in my life when I was 19. 
I know how much. I mean, to I, at 19, I don't think I was at risk of falling for the first person who showed me attention because even though I even though I was terrified of the thought of being alone and I definitely had like such crushingly low self-esteem that mm. I you know, I felt myself to exist outside of what what other girls around me were able to want and desire. I felt like it was almost embarrassing for me to express a desire for those things mm. because who was I to want them? Yeah. But at the same time, I was absolutely terrified of um, physical intimacy and I was terrified of uh, relationships. So I was sort of, I kind of protected myself in a way because I had all of these walls and barriers up then. But I related very strongly to the parts in your book where you talked about forming relationships with people online. Mm. Because when you speak to people online, you are not only able to craft a version of yourself that you feel um, will be attractive to another person. Mm. But I think one of the one of the kind of silver linings of that and one of the things that has been pretty influential and beneficial to me in my life, and maybe will re- reframe some people's thoughts about online interactions in this sense, mm. is that when you communicate with someone in an online way and you are you know expressing intimacy with them and you're uh, developing some form of online romance yeah. you're really learning to fall in love with yourself in a weird way like you're seeing yourself through someone else's eyes but through the construction of words yeah absolutely and I think we can see that I always felt like sending you know uh, sending an email to someone that was uh that it was intimate um in terms of like connection and learning about each other and so on and so forth it's almost this might sound arrogant or egotistical in a way, but I think that this is true for all of us. It's almost irrelevant who the person on the other side of the line is because what you're doing is you're sending um, a testimony about yourself mm. out into the ether mm. and you're receiving something back that tells you you are worthwhile, you are loved, you are your words made me feel this about mm. yeah. about myself and therefore you have this value. Yes. There's something quite, um, you know, there's a lot of problematic stuff associated with the ways in which we were able to construct ourselves online but in that sense I think that there's something really beautiful about it. Yeah absolutely I think one of the things that I used to do enjoy the most with internet dating particularly when I moved to Melbourne it was before apps it was when it was mostly done through websites was the writing of the letter you know emails to people and really connecting and then when I'd meet them in, in person I was disappointed that that kind of same connection wasn't there or sometimes it was. Mm. Oh God, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? <laughs> no, I know it's really, yeah, it's it's really really hard. And you know, I know I didn't say I wanted to. T- I know I said I didn't want to talk too much about Adam, but I met Adam online, and I, I mean, it's pretty on record that I didn't, you know, I, I didn't see any future with him when I, um, you know, when we met in person because we are so different because our communication styles are so different, and he really, you know, I guess really liked me for who I was, but I just. I just didn't feel we connected because he's not a huge talker and I am. And it really took work, you know, it really took work between us to um, come to know each other in a way that that I wasn't used to because he's not a big communicator. Mm. I mean, that's an interesting side effect of online dating as well is that, uh, you know, some of my most profound loves in my life, had I met them, you know, on an online date and having never met them before, mm. I probably would have walked away and gone, oh, well, that was a bust. That was a fitter. Mm. Um, There is something to be said for that slow growth of, I mean, for some people that really works well. For some people they love just the kind of the routine nature of it and they they do very well on dates. And I guess what they're looking for is more of a sort of, well, we'll start at this point and we'll build on it, you know, Mm -hmm. or or I can learn to like this person or or I, I have patience to let it, breathe a little bit and see whether or not I like them. But for me, I guess I've kind of the sort of weird uh, high school teen movie romantic in me still loves that idea of like having a crush on someone and you think like, are they going to be at the party? Are they going to be at the pub? Will we talk? And there's something also quite relieving and, and it's like removes the pressure a little bit if you can say, well, we can talk for five minutes in the corner, but I'm so overwhelmed by my feelings and the flirtation here that I need to kind of go away and talk to other people Mm. and also build up that, um, 
know, that desire across the room and, and mm. kind of lean into that scarcity of the resource. You know, like if someone's too available, then it becomes less appealing. Whereas if you're kind of yeah. dancing around each other, literally and figuratively mm. in a big room, mm. well, that's pretty fucking hot. Mm, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I, I can definitely say that Adam was probably more interested in me than I was in, in him to start with and, and very forward as well. And, and I was a little bit um, taken aback by that because I wasn't used to that. So it takes work. Can we talk very quickly about mm-hmm. something you said just a little bit earlier mm-hmm. where, you know, you were talking about Catfish Guy mm-hmm. and you said that at the time um, you didn't identify as disabled. Mm-hmm. And I know for you, as it is the case with a lot of uh, disabled people or people mm-hmm. with disabilities, however people prefer to, to phrase that, yep. um, uh, that, that that journey towards pride mm-hmm. is is something that does take time yep. because we don't live in a society that um, instills pride mm-hmm. in uh, disability. Yep. And obviously ableism dictates um, the vast majority of that. Yeah. And in you you have talked before about having internalised ableism when you were younger. Yeah. Uh, what... For anyone who's listening who is on that journey themselves, yeah. what is your what has been your experience with it and what, yeah. what advice would you I give? I mean, them? I never identified as being disabled because I never saw anyone like me, you know, in the media. When I was younger, disability was around Paralympians. It was around welfare cheats on a current affair. Um, it was people that were much more disabled than I was. And so I think because my parents never used the term disability, aside from, um, you know, the idea of hand, what, what was then called handicap allowance, which was, um, you know, a support, uh, you know, a, a welfare payment for parents of children with disabilities, uh, which I received uh, or they received for me, there was kind of never any... Um, association to disability for me so that meant that I couldn't ask for the things that I needed for support at school for example so you know there was another disabled person at my primary school and she got a lot of support but I didn't find that I could ask for the support that I needed because I didn't identify as disabled you know in hindsight Um, and so it took a long time to identify it was you know when I started writing about myself more and um, exploring disability you know as you would know writing really helps you discover yourself and discover other people and it took a long long time probably until I was you know in my late 20s 26 I would say uh, when I started mentoring um, children at the, or children and young people at the chronic illness peer support program at the children's hospital and I met heaps of people with different types of disabilities and chronic illnesses who we all experienced the same thing despite having those different diagnoses and I realized you know I didn't know about it then, but it was the social model of disability when society is more disabling than the body. And we had all experienced, you know, time off school, time off work to go see hospital, um, you know, to go to hospital clinics or many different specialists or hospital stays or um, people discriminating against us. So it was then that was my turning point to meet other people and then, you know, working in disability media on No Limits with um, Stella Young was on No Limits for a long time before I was on No Limits, but Stella was not on No Limits with me. Um, She quit, I think, or finished with them a year before I started, but she was, you know, one one of the people that was on No Limits for a long time. And I remember watching No Limits on Channel 31 before... Um, I started and seeing her on it and then I remember writing to her at the time you know years before I started probably five years before I started saying it's really great to you know to hear people talking about this so I was kind of identified with the barriers then um yeah so it was definitely a turning point when I met other people and I know um lots of disabled people talk about the importance of representation and, and coming to know yourself through you know seeing other people in the media and it is really great that we can do that now Mm. Mm. there's a weird sort of um benevolence as well that happens from able-bodied people that you know Stella Young uh you know her amazing TED talk about inspiration porn which you've also spoken about at length as well Mm. and one of the things that you uh from my witnessing, one of the things that seems to be a daily frustration in your life is not just the kind of more specific examples of ableism that you experience and discrimination um, that you've spoken out 
about so eloquently and powerfully. But the, the sort of microaggressions mm-hmm. that happen every day as well, where um, the, the benevolent ableism mm-hmm. and, you know, quote unquote benevolent ableism of people who insist on using you as a prop or mm-hmm. insist on, on wanting to be um, inspired mm-hmm. by you. And I know that Stella always used to say that, like, don't be inspired of don't don't be inspired by me because I got out of bed today. Mm. Um, and there is something really offensive in that. Yeah. One of the things you deal with is is you as a disabled person explaining that to people mm. and having them turn around and say, "Well, fuck you. I can I can be inspired <laughs> by you if I want to." Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's very hard to be the person who is that 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 puts someone else's life into perspective. You know. Um, I get a lot of well-meaning people tell me, oh, I, I've seen your story or I read your story and I realise that, you know, my life isn't so bad, you know, my minor eczema isn't so bad or they try and compare it with something else or, you know, tell me that they realise how lucky they are. Um, I saw a tweet by a woman um, in England, uh, Amy Kavanagh, who um, goes by the blind historian on Twitter and she was talking about how she only just realised at the age of 31 that people who can see um, can see rain and so she had a bunch of beautiful tweets around this and people were describing you know frost storms and really lovely things to her but one of the things that she received was oh this tweet has really made me realize how lucky I am to have vision and she said this isn't what she wanted um people to do that she didn't want to be the source of someone else feeling better about their life because she can't do something mm. Mm. I think that's really powerful the way that you put it you know that it's it's hard to have you be the person that puts other people's lives into perspective yeah. and that's an incredible burden mm. for you to be constantly to have foisted upon you by all of these people <laughs> who uh, don't realize exactly how offensive that is yeah. but also it's like well I mean, your life's pretty fucking good. It is. And also I feel like there's this expectation that we will behave in a certain way or respond to that in a certain way because this might be the only interaction that someone has with a disabled person. Mm. I mean, there's been studies that only sort of 5% of people, non-disabled people, have um, friendships or interactions with disabled people. So if I'm responding in an angry way, then they're never going to want to talk to a disabled person again you know I've I had a woman email me on Facebook one day message me on Facebook asking me what she should do around looking at or talking to people with facial differences and I didn't get back to her for some time because you know I have a life and so she responded the next day saying well I'll take your non-responses as a response and I'm never going to talk to a person with a facial difference again then like that wasn't what I was saying in my silence. It was saying that I was having a life that I have to think of the response, that I'm not just here to educate someone and that I shouldn't have to respond in a way that they want to or they want me to. Mm. And also there's this great new thing called the internet and <laughs> on the internet is this great new thing called Google. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I feel like this is one of the, I mean, a lot of there's been a lot of acknowledgement and discussion of white fragility in the last few weeks, uh, necessarily so, mm. of course, but fragility is applicable in so many uh, of these different scenarios. And the fragility of able-bodied people who cannot stand having their, um, you know, sort of patronising, condescending, well, look at me, I'm such a great person because I I was really kind to a disabled yeah. person today. Um, they can't stand having that thrown back in their face. And so then they use it, as you said, as an excuse to sort of turn around and say, well, I tried. I tried to be nice to a disabled person and they were just a really rude bitch to me. So now I'm just going to wipe my hands of that responsibility. And that's really what it is, isn't it? It's that people manufacture these excuses and these scenarios in which they can provide, they can easily provide themselves with a justification and the excuse to no longer fucking care. Absolutely. Yeah. And they feel- Even though they didn't care in the beginning and yeah. they're not doing anything to change anything. Yeah, absolutely. And and they, they don't want to do the work and they want, they want to receive an answer that, that they're comfortable with. It's, it's really- it's really hard. It's it's hard to manage their feelings. I mean, I try. I don't feel like I, I should, but sometimes, you know, if obviously if I've got a relationship with them, um, you know, an ongoing relationship with them, like in work or you know, would see them around, it is hard to manage that kind of feeling because then I know I'll be just cast as the difficult person. Yeah, that's a, that's an incredible stress for you to have to carry. Yeah. Every day, yeah. um, to be the walking teacher. Yeah. 
Absolutely. You know, you get to be the walking inspiration and the teacher and the educator all at once. And it's like, where, where do you get to be Carly? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think you're expected always to be on and, you know, people might tag me in something thinking that I might love it because it's around disability or they tell me, oh, you you should share this. And I'm like, no, actually you should share this with your audience because your audience needs to know this because mostly (laughs) the people you associate with are non-disabled. And so there, there isn't a time to switch off. I feel like it's just constant, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. I, I relate to that in a small way, just in terms of, um, you know, men that I know who, I mean, well-meaning men, nice men, mm. they like their families, they like their daughters, etc. cetera. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's fine. Like we, they don't need all those caveats mm. to sort of say they're a really good guy. Mm. Um, but oftentimes, you know, they may have had a feminist awakening after having daughters or after like falling in love with a woman and suddenly they're like, oh, I really care about women now. Um, and for better or worse, look, it is great that they're kind of engaging with this, with the content that I write about and they're engaging with feminism and sexism and misogyny and patriarchy. Yep. But exactly like you said, I don't need you to send me a fucking article link to this horrible <laughs> abuse that's happened yep. or to this sort of like sexist microaggression. Like I know that this stuff happens. Yep. I don't need yep. to share it. Yep. I've probably exactly. seen it already. Exactly. I get a lot of that. Why don't you share it with your friends? Share it yep. with your Share it publicly. Mm-hmm. Share it publicly and like front up in front of the men in your lives so that yeah. you're not just patting yourself on the back behind closed yeah. doors and saying, well, I'm a really good guy. Yeah, I, I, I often tell people, you know, you know, I obviously cannot respond to every request that comes in. And I said, you know, if I've taught you anything, it's how to make a complaint or how to um, be a better ally, which is not putting the burden on me to do it. My only experience of that is the way that men sometimes do it to me. They they write to me and they're like, well, if you don't respond to me, why don't you explain the wage gap to me? Why don't you explain rape culture to me? And I say, well, why don't you go on fucking Google it? And they're like, oh, well, their, their attitude seems to be that if you won't take this time out of your day, which I'm not paying you for, by the way, but if you won't take this time out of your day to educate me on this, then somehow the fact that, like, you've written two books about this already that I could read and educate myself, but I'm demanding that you spend more time and more labour giving yeah. me a personal audience on it, that if you refuse to do that, then somehow your entire political framework is null and void. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely agree. And, and I think you're right there when, when you talk about the lack of commitment to paying. I get so many people ask me to consult on their things or provide them, you know, responses for school assignments and, and work resources. And I actually just reply to say, look, I've written a book. I've written many, many things. Go and Google it. Um, and I often include my PayPal and Patreon because this is work. And I just actually, I just got an email today from someone to ask me to consult with them on on something because the NDIS have asked them to go contact disabled people to pick their brain for half an hour. No, <laughs> no, the NDIS is a government organisation. I mean, I don't, I don't want to do that. And so I will respond and I'll say, I don't want to do this. You can go and read my book. You can go and listen to the podcast I've done, but I, I cannot spare you half an hour because the NDIS has recommended us to do that. And on that note, all of you wonderful listeners can also go and read Carly's book. It is called Say Hello by Carly Finlay, How I Became My Own Fangirl, a memoir and manifesto on difference, acceptance, self-love and belief. And it's really fucking good. I mean, that's not a surprise, but the things that you kind of talk about in terms of of touch and Mm. what what it says about us as humans to crave that physical touch really moved me a lot. And thank you so much for writing that book. Thank you for reading it. You've been listening to The Big Sister Hotline, a weekly advice podcast that delivers no-nonsense words with love from the kind of people you know have your back, your big sisters. Now, I know we didn't do any advice um, per se on today's show, but I feel like there was a lot of rich advice in what I did talk about with Carly, so I was just very happy for the conversation to go for the full hour, and I know that you're all going to be very happy with that too. You can find The Big Sister Hotline on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podchaser, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you look for great content. And you can also listen to all the back episodes. Please, if you like the show, then do consider rating it and writing even a short review because it definitely helps. And it helps to um, advertise the show to other people who will also enjoy listening to it. You can send your questions to bigsisterhotline at gmail.com and you can support the ongoing making of the podcast at my Patreon, which is 
allthews.patreon.com forward slash Clementine Ford. My guest this week has been the wonderful, fashionable, colourful, excellent Carly Findlay, who I'm very proud to call my friend as well. She's an appearance activist, fashionista, writer and speaker. Carly, have you got anything to plug? Thank you so much for having me, Clem. I would plug my book, Say Hello. Also, Growing Up Disabled in Australia, it is not out because of COVID, but it will be out in February. You can pre-order that now at Black Ink Books. Um, Also, I have a Patreon and PayPal as well. It is on my website, carlyfinlay.com.au forward slash support hyphen me. Thank you. That was fun. Carly, you're amazing. Thank you. People can follow you on Instagram uh, at Carly Findlay and they can also follow you on Facebook at Carly Findlay and, uh, you know, go to your website and support your Patreon and your PayPal. Remember, there's no topic too thorny and no question too weird for the Big Sister Hotline. We're here for all the questions you don't want to ask your therapist, especially now that it has to be over Zoom. So contact us instead, the Big Sister Hotline. The phone lines are open. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 